Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi everyone, it's me, Jack, again. It's nice to be back. I say to be back only because I feel like I haven't done one of these for a while, but we've been putting out episodes and uh, hopefully you've been enjoying them. I certainly have been enjoying listening to them. I've got another good one for you today. Um, I had such an interesting time talking to today's guest. Um, I was a little bit in awe of his uh, knowledge, (laughs) as you may be able to tell from the uh, tenor of my questions, perhaps. Uh, But yeah, I had an absolutely lovely time and I learned so, so much. So today's episode is all about Antarctic governance. It's kind of about polar governance in general, we talk a little bit about the Arctic, but it's mostly about the Antarctic Treaty and how that came to be and why it was so interesting. And yes, yeah, so if um, don't be alarmed, please, if, uh, if geopolitics doesn't sound like it would be your jam, then I beg you, just hang on and listen to how well this guest communicates how interesting this topic is. Yes, yeah, so the Antarctic Treaty, it was super interesting. It was set up um, in the 20th century, in, you know, when a lot of other interesting things were happening. It was a, an agreement between nations which hardly agreed about anything else. So if you want to figure out how that came to be, then stick around. And I hope that you enjoy today's episode of Polar Times. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage our guest for today, uh, Klaus Dodds. Hi Klaus, how's it going? Thank you for coming on to Polar Times. Thank you for inviting me, Jack. Really pleased to be here. Excellent. Okay, so this is the first section of the podcast. We call it the icebreaker. It's where we get to know you, our guest. So as ever, my first question is, who are you? What do you currently do now? And how did you kind of come to polar life? I'm a professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway University of London. And I suppose for the purposes of this podcast, um, I would be probably most commonly thought of as a polar social scientist or sort of polar geographer. As part of my sort of career looking at the polar regions, I've sort of had the good fortune to work at a number of institutions. After completing my PhD at the University of Bristol, I uh, had my first academic appointment at the University of Edinburgh, where I was really lucky to be mentored by two polar geographers, David Sugden and uh, Mike Summerfield. So that was that was really fun. And then I came down to Royal Holloway, um, which is part of the University of London. And I've been there, um, I think, probably about 27 years. But in the meantime, I've also done lots of other things, including a visiting fellowship at Gateway Antarctica, which is in the University of uh, Canterbury in New Zealand. And that was a sort of really wonderful four months, getting to know and understand a little bit better the New Zealand sort of polar, polar scene, if I can put it like that. And then how did I get into the uh, polar environment? Probably, maybe it's true of a lot of people, serendipitously, in the sense of that um, I probably was first inspired with all things polar, probably by my parents, actually. My, My mother is Austrian, but she grew up in the city of Durban in South Africa. And uh, for those of you who know your Antarctic history, you'll know that Durban was actually a whaling centre. And there were a lot of comings and goings in and out of the port. And part of that was a trade that looked south as opposed to north. And then my father was in the Royal Navy. 
and um, in fleet air arm, he was a pilot. And part of his career took him to all, all around, I suppose, the Southern Ocean. He never made it to the Antarctic, but he, he went around the Cape Horn and across the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. And so I think I was always sort of very conscious of, if you like, a sort of a sense of sort of Southern hemispheric geography. And then, and this really betrays my age. So, I, you know, I'm in my 50s. Like many kids who grew up in Britain in the sort of early 70s, we had our Ladybird books. And these were these sort of books that would now be seen to be ridiculously old fashioned and deeply problematic. But there was one on Captain Scott. And uh, my father, again, as I said, being a naval officer, you know, was not shy in sort of pushing these kinds of stories about British polar heroics. And um, although he was not a fan of Scott, I think he preferred Shackleton. It was part and parcel of my my childhood. And then the sort of the funny element of all of this is that my academic career in so many ways has, has been spent thinking far more critically of the very thing that I grew up in, which is, I guess, a kind of imperial polar um, heritage. So that's that's it in a nutshell. You know, it's a lot of it is about family circumstances and then an academic career that enabled me to, in some ways, seize opportunities to develop this field further. Yeah, I think that's true of quite a lot of our guests, you know, have interest um polar or at least adventurous leanings and then you know when the opportunity actually comes along it's hard to pass up you describe your field as geopolitics as in what you're working and just for my benefit and our listeners can you kind of describe what geopolitics is what you mean by that yeah absolutely so so there's always been i think two strands to my academic career one is what i would call the sort of more conventional work that i do around geopolitics, border politics, international relations. And then there's another element where I take some of that and then I think about how it might apply to the polar regions. Now, geopolitics has a bit of a notorious history, intellectual history. It was coined in the 1890s. And fundamentally, what it's really about is the relationship between states, territories, resources, and access. And in essence, it, it says, it, as the kind of the, the sort of portmanteau term suggests, is that politics can be understood with reference to the physical geographies of the earth. So actually, where continents or islands or oceans reside on the earth really makes a difference to the nature and the substance of politics. So to give an example, it's extraordinarily important that Taiwan is an island that is not that far away from mainland China. And it would be virtually impossible to understand Taiwanese-Chinese relationships if you didn't take into account that Taiwan was an island. And that then provided a refuge all those years ago, of course, for an alternative government uh, to make its presence felt when the People's Republic of China, of course, emerged in the late 1940s. Now, if we take that general approach to the Antarctic, there's a slight counterintuitive quality to geopolitics here, because you might say, well, look, here we are thinking about the only continent in the world that doesn't have an indigenous human population that is covered in the, in the most part in ice with very, very few ice-free areas, where all the standard mechanisms of human colonization 
are just not possible. You know, we, we haven't been able to develop agriculture. We haven't been able to develop cities, towns, infrastructures that we take for granted in every other part of the world. And yet, despite the absence of a human population and remoteness and everything else that we understand about the Antarctic, geopolitics has been a really important element of the human encounter with the Antarctic, which we could say really starts only about 200 years ago when the Antarctic is sighted for the first time. Of course, it's been imagined and fantasized about for many, many hundreds of years earlier, but fundamentally we're only talking about 200 years and it's been absolutely shot through with geopolitical considerations. In other words, who owns it, who controls it, who is going to exploit it, who is going to govern it. All these things are the stuff of geopolitics. Yeah, that's super interesting. You don't really think about Antarctica having such a short human history, but of course it does, as, as you say. It's, <laughs> yeah, and also this idea that, you know, the physical geography makes a difference to literally everything. You learn geography in school, you learn history in school, you might do politics in A-level, but I don't think you would necessarily touch on kind of that aspect of it without unless you went on to higher education I suppose yeah it's it's absolutely fascinating and as you say like for the polls <laughs> it's it's really really intriguing and they're completely different from each other of course <laughs> yeah we should really stress that I mean to be absolutely clear here because I work on both Arctic and Antarctic geopolitics and indeed I work on a field called polar geopolitics and I think it's really important we all appreciate that the Arctic is fundamentally a very different geographical space it's a semi-enclosed ocean surrounded by, of course, continents. It's also crucially an inhabited space and has been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia. So that's the Arctic. The Antarctic, as we know, of course, is a continent surrounded by an immense southern ocean. But the geography of the Antarctic also matters enormously. You know, if you think about the Antarctic Peninsula, the bit that Henry Kissinger famously said, you know, it's, it's sort of like a dagger pointing towards South America, or South America is like a dagger pointing towards the Antarctic. We can, we can reverse it, I suppose. That, of course, is the bit that has seen the most intense human activity. And it's not really surprising. It's the closest point to another continent, South America. And if you have, like I have, crossed the Cape Horn, you know, been down the Drake's Passage, you'll know it's quite an eventful couple of days sailing, or certainly can be. But that's quite different, of course, from the other part of the Antarctic, the East Antarctic, which is a lot further away from places like Australia. So when you think about the Antarctic Peninsula, that's been a hotbed of geopolitical intrigue. You know, that's the area where we've seen the most intense resource exploitation, but also where ice-free areas, for example, were very attractive to those earliest colonists who wanted to create whaling stations, sealing stations, and later, of course, the first, I suppose, sorts of expeditionary hubs, and then, of course, scientific stations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the Antarctic then and how it's governed. Um, people listening probably will have heard of the Antarctic Treaty. And maybe that's probably it. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not often in the news, I suppose. I mean, it's hard for me to judge because I'm a polar scientists so I hear about it all the time. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what is the um, Antarctic Treaty? When was it set up? What does it do? You're absolutely right. So when, when we talk about really uh, about Antarctic governance, 
we, we almost invariably start with the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. The treaty itself was signed in December 1959 and entered into force in June 1961. And that's important to understand because when the 12 parties signed it on the 1st of December 1959, they then had to take, if you will, the treaty back to their national parliaments and those national parliaments had to endorse that treaty. Now, the UK was the quickest to do the endorsing, just as we were the quickest to endorse the Protocol on Environmental Protection, which we might come on to later. And the reason why we were so quick to endorse the Antarctic Treaty is because the Antarctic Treaty did everything we wanted it to do. So what did the Antarctic Treaty do? Well, first and foremost, it established the Antarctic as a zone of peace and cooperation. Now that was incredibly important because the, the year 1959 is the clue. It's the same year, of course, that we have the Cuban revolution. This is an intense period of Cold War geopolitics. So it's quite remarkable, all things considered, that 12 parties led by the United States were able to sit down and negotiate a treaty in six weeks and to, in a sense, create a very simple but effective framework that has helped to govern the Antarctic ever since. In case listeners are wondering why there were 12 parties, we should just be clear that the reason for that is the 12 parties were selected on the basis that they had participated in the International Geophysical Year of 1957-58 and had had Antarctic programs. So it's a quixotic 12. Some of them you won't be surprised by, the United States and the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom. Others, such as Belgium, may not have been in the 12 that you would have perhaps guessed. But the key thing to bear in mind, and this is really important with the Antarctic Treaty, is that seven out of the 12 original signatories were so-called claimant states. And that's really significant here, because what the treaty did as well was to say that for the sake of international cooperation and goodwill, we're not trying to resolve the difficult question of who owns Antarctica. Because when those parties went to Washington in 1959, seven countries sincerely believed that they had a legitimate and very large stake in Antarctica. So if you ever look at a map of Antarctic claims, you might be surprised to see, if you've not seen it before, that 42% of the polar continent is claimed by Australia. And then you, your eye might then turn to the Antarctic Peninsula and you'll see Argentina, Chile, the United Kingdom, they all claim the same part of the Antarctic. Well, that's messy. And then you go along the continent, you look at all these pie slices and you'll see that there's Norway, there's New Zealand, there's France. And then you'll get to a part of the Antarctic called the Pacific Ocean Sector where Thwaites Glacier is, for example, which some listeners may of course be only too familiar with in terms of recent scientific cooperation and, and breaking news, that's never been claimed by anybody. And that's the only part of the Earth's surface, terrestrial surface, that has not been claimed by a nation state of any significance. You know, I don't want people sort of, sort of texting me and say, oh, but there's a small portion, but I'm talking about substantive piece of what we might call terrestrial real estate has not been claimed. So the treaty, what it did in essence, it says, look, we can't resolve this issue. This is too difficult. And the United States and the Soviet Union said, we actually reserve a right to make a claim anyway. So the treaty says, look, and it's the famous Article 4, we can't agree, 
we're not going to resolve this. We're going to park this issue of who owns Antarctica. Sometimes people talk about it freezing these claims, but I'm, I've, I've just said it. I don't know why I said it. I should let me just go back to park. And we're going to say nobody's claim, counterclaim, would-be claim is going to be prejudiced, but we're going to focus on the things we agree on. So zone of peace, let's all focus on science. Let's please make sure we cooperate and we share information with one another. Let's agree that we're not going to carry out military activities. So the Antarctic is demilitarized. And then I think me, for me, most notably, they also say um, there should be no nuclear activity in the Antarctic. So this is the world's first nuclear-free zone. And the Antarctic Treaty inspires a whole series of other nuclear-free initiatives in places like the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So the treaty is short. It's, on the face of it, incredibly straightforward and direct. And yet, imagine the treaty in four languages. So there are four official languages, English, um, Spanish, French, and Russian. And what no one should be under any illusion is that the treaty's negotiation over that six-week so-called Washington conference was very intense, and parties had to make painful compromises. You know, the Australians did not like Article 4 and thought it was going to compromise their sovereign rights over the Australian Antarctic Territory. The United States, until the treaty negotiations, was toying with the idea of carrying out nuclear tests in the Antarctic. And everybody had to accept that other things that they were all very aware of, such as resources, were not going to be talked about at the conference. And the reason was very simple. You talk about resources, inevitably you talk about ownership. And so that's why you'll find no references to resources in the treaty. So there were certain things they agreed not to discuss in order to get agreement. And the final thing I'll say about the treaty, which is really important as a piece of governance, is first of all, it's a treaty. That, in other words, people have obligations. You can't just, you know, it's not a framework. This is a legal document. And the second thing is the principle of consensus is absolutely critical. So in other words, parties have to agree with one another. And that's incredibly important because it means that everybody who signed that treaty has equal voting rights. So you can't, in, in essence, say, little old Belgium, well, we won't worry about Belgium because as long as the United States and the Soviet Union get what they want, then that's all that matters. So it was an incredibly important treaty, and it really established the framework uh, from which everything else follows. Sure, it's, it's really absolutely fascinating, as historically, as you say. I mean, as you say, it's quite short. Go away, read it. You can you can you can read it quite you know understand it quite easily. And those first few articles, they're so it's so punchy, isn't it? It's like oh, set aside for peace, uh, communicate and cooperate, and all these kinds of things. And it's kind of, I suppose, hailed often as maybe I'm doing air quotes because uh, the most successful peace treaty of our times. <laughs> probably up for debate. Um, but I suppose when you think about the crucible that it was born into, as you said, things that were happening at that time, the Cuban revolution, this was like before the Berlin Wall went up, even it's <laughs> considering these nations who signed this Antarctic Treaty were not agreeing on much else, 
it really is quite staggering. <laughs> it's really, um... it, it is, but it, but also if you read the treaty as well, you know, in terms of the the articles, it sets up a system that we should be under no doubt privileges the the powerful and those who had a vested presence in the Antarctic. So I think we we ought to give a sort of health check about the Antarctic Treaty before we celebrate it a little sure. bit too much. So let's let's just give it a health check. Number one, it's negotiated in an era when women and minorities of every sort are largely absent from the Antarctic. So we are talking about a white male space, uh, and that is reflected in a great deal of all the negotiations and the sort of prevailing culture, highly masculinized, where science and the figure of the male scientist is largely celebrated. You know, this is, this is not a diverse space in any sense. Secondly, if the Antarctic is the world's first nuclear-free zone, then of course that's something to celebrate on the face of it. But then we need to step back and say, well, okay, if Antarctica didn't suffer from nuclear testing, where else did? And then we begin to audit, of course, where many other parts of the world were nuclear tested. So many of them, of course, were indigenous communities living in places like the South Pacific, or of course, Northern spaces. You know, if you think about why Greenpeace came about in the late 1960s, in large part because it was about protests against nuclear testing and environmental damage in Alaska. And of course, the Soviet Union absolutely treated parts of the Arctic as a sort of nuclear testing zone as well. So, so in essence, what the Antarctic Treaty did in saving Antarctica, it helped to displace nuclear testing elsewhere. And so that's also a cautionary note. And then the third thing, if you look carefully at membership and who can join, one of the things the treaty parties did very deliberately, and you'll find it in a particular article, and it uses a phrase, substantial scientific activity. So if you want to become a fully you know, paid up member with voting rights, a so-called Antarctic Treaty Consultative Party, you have to demonstrate substantial scientific interest if you want to join the club. Now, who, who of course, adjudicates on that? Well, the original members. And then you look at the history of the membership and you'll see very quickly in the 60s and 70s, not many states joined. And when India raised the so-called question of Antarctica in the United Nations in the late 50s, considerable diplomatic pressure was put on India by the United Kingdom in particular to in essence say to India, drop it. We don't want to hear any stories of this being some kind of exclusive club where 12 countries effectively decide the future of a continent. So there's an interesting story to be told about the, the treaty itself. If you read the preamble, lots of good things are said about acting in the interests of humanity or mankind, as of course it was commonly framed as in the 50s. And then there's another side to the Antarctic Treaty system this is a system that is set up to privilege the rights, the interests, and the visions of the original 12. Sure. So it was kind of their easiest solution at the time. It's, it benefited them themselves to, to reach this consensus agreement, I suppose, at that when it was. But it was also painful trade offs. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to give another example, in the Antarctic Treaty, 
there is a very clear understanding that, and remember the protocol on environmental protection does not exist at this stage, but there is a clear sense that if you want to conduct scientific research, you can conduct scientific research anywhere you want to on the polar continent. Now, that was a very painful principle to adopt for the claimant states. And for countries like Australia, it really hurt because what had they discovered during the International Geophysical Year? Well, they discovered that the Soviets were going to establish a presence in Australian Antarctic territory. And there was nothing, of course, the Australians could do about it. Nowadays, of course, Australia worries about the Chinese scientific presence, or at least sections of Australian society do. But in, in the late 50s, you know, so-called reds on the ice and the big debate in Australia in 1958, 1959, 1960 onwards was, were the Soviets going to stay or were they going to leave? And at that stage, of course, there was a lot of concern that the Soviets might be even thinking about creating secret military bases in Australian Antarctic Territory. And then who knows what those bases you know, might do in terms of endangering the southern portion of Australia. So in essence, yes, it was a sort of cosy agreement between the 12 parties, but there was an awful lot of toing and froing in the late 1950s and early 60s. You know, the 12 parties were not natural bedfellows. They just happened to be the International Geophysical Year's Antarctic representatives. So again, as I said earlier, there's a slightly quixotic quality to who the 12 were. Sure. And just to touch quickly, how, how was the Antarctic governed before the treaty? Was it literally just kind of no man's land, free for all? <laughs> go If you can go there, go and take what you can? Yes. I mean, I think in essence, I mean, Jack, that's actually a reasonable summary. You know, because if you look at the history of the Antarctic, really prior to 1945, so let's, if we say the Antarctic is first sighted in 1820, and then we look at the next, let's for argument's sake, say 100 years. It's, it's really a story of episodic encounter. So you've got, you know, you've got great expeditions, sighting, discovering, earliest mapping, but you've also got running alongside that two other things. You've got sealing and whaling. So intense resource exploitation. You know, we've got exactly the same thing that's going on in the Arctic, going on in the Antarctic. This idea of the Antarctic as a kind of rapacious resource frontier. That was a sort of, as you said, a no man's land. You know, who was to tell anyone, you know, what they should do? Now, the other element to all of this was that the British are the first to claim the Antarctic in 1908. And then they have another go at it in 1917. Um, but that starts the so-called claimant era, which we might say is from 1900 to around the Second World War. At the same time, expeditions, discovery, um, scientific work continues, but the Antarctic starting to become a slightly different place because the governance and geopolitics is sort of hotting up. And then we have the Second World War, and that's really significant because it's the start of the permanent human occupation of Antarctica. You know, this is when the British and others established their research stations. Uh, in the UK's case, we, we have what's called the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey 
It then becomes the British Antarctic Survey in the 60s. And the mission of FIDS, as it was called, it's really simple. Mapping, surveying, occupation, and sovereignty. So scientists, and this might surprise, of course, contemporary scientists, you know, working in universities and, and British Antarctic Survey, but scientists in the 1940s and 50s were kind of geopolitical agents. You know, they were expected to fly the flag, tell visiting parties, whether Argentine, Chilean, or American, that you were on crown lands, and to remind them politely that they were trespassing. So, you know, you don't have to do that nowadays when you're in the Antarctic, but that's, that's the reality. It was messy, it was confusing. There were some early ideas for governance before the Antarctic Treaty, but nobody could agree on them. Sure, and then the Antarctic Treaty came along, of course, and it's got these lovely high ideas and it sounds great. It sounds like it's really protected and uh, pristine and only for science and that kind of thing. But then there is still a level of resource extraction, maybe not from terrestrial areas, but from uh, marine areas, of course, fisheries, which, you know, just when you add that into the, the mixing pot, I suppose, just <laughs> adds an added level of complication. It certainly does. I mean, it's worth, again, just sort of reminding listeners that commercial whaling um, ceases really in the early 1960s. And there are lots of reasons for that. But fundamentally, you know, the two most important are, number one, the strategic uh, economic rationale for whaling oil, and whaling products disappears. Uh, there are alternatives, in short. You know, whale oil had been used for heating, for the, uh, it had been used for the manufacture of margarine. Well, there were alternatives. But of course, the most important is that public opinion turned on whaling. So what you get is in the early 60s is environmental campaigns, public understanding of whaling shifting from something that was considered acceptable to something that was considered unacceptable. Now, of course, the, the there are, of course, loopholes. The International Whaling Commission does re regulate whaling, but whaling continues. Scientific whaling, of course, was continued by Japan in the Southern Ocean. And of course, indigenous and small scale whaling still con continues all around the world, including, of course, in the Arctic as well. The 60s are important because the Antarctic Treaty goes into a new phase. Mm. And up until that point, the treaty had largely thought of the Antarctic as a natural laboratory for science. So it was very common for people to talk about the Antarctic as a continent for science. Now, in the 1960s, attention really turns to living resources, fish in particular. And it's the Southern Ocean that actually bears the brunt of scrutiny. And so what we start to get is concern that the Soviet Union and others are looking to the Southern Ocean to extract fish and, of course, krill, that, as we know, is absolutely essential to the Southern Ocean ecosystem. And about this time, there was even speculation that with concern over mounting global population, krill could be an essential food source for countries like India and China. And the Soviet Union had very large fishing fleets. And there was a concern that if we weren't careful, we were going to get fish stock collapse and the Southern Ocean would become yet another tragedy of over-exploitation. You know, it's the tragedy of the commons type argument. If you don't have good governance, 
if if it's all there just for the taking, then people don't exercise self-restraint. So Antarctic Treaty governance had to tackle new issues. And really what you see is in the 70s and 80s is a, as a sort of move from early attempts to get agreement on conservation, on flora and fauna and seals. And then it tackles the two hardest subjects, fishing successfully, minerals unsuccessfully. <laughs> and so when we get to the 1980s, this is the crisis decade. This is when Antarctic governance is being buffeted by all kinds of external forces. This is the decade when Antarctica is politically globalized. It's no longer the continent existing in splendid isolation being governed by a small number of states. This is the moment when it gets scrutinized at the United Nations and when environmental organizations are absolutely on the case of the Antarctic Treaty parties. It's, it's a really nerve-wracking decade when the Antarctic Treaty system was at one point, I think, in danger of collapse. And this, so this is when it was, uh, they set up, as you say, like Kamala for the fishing resources. And then I'm not sure what happened with the, with the mineral resources apart from um, I know that you're not allowed to extract mineral resources from Antarctica as it currently stands. So it was just no agreement ever reached? No. Not that surprising. And, <laughs> and this is the bit that makes the 80s the crisis decade for Antarctic governance. Between 1982 and 1988, led by the New Zealand lawyer Chris Beebe, there had been six years of intense negotiations over what was called Cramra. And Cramra was the equivalent of Kamla. And one of the things that made it such a crisis decade was in 1988-89, two countries, Australia and France, having previously indicated support for Cramra, walked away from the agreement. And what Cramra was trying to do was to establish a mining framework in Antarctica before mining occurred. So if you're looking for an example of what we might think of as anticipatory governance, Cramra is a good example. Exhibit A, we might call it. The problem was this. If you're going to create a mining agreement or framework, and you have in the title mineral exploitation, um, you are leaving yourself open to potential scrutiny. So of course, for environmental organizations like the Antarctic Southern Ocean Coalition, ASOC for short, this is what they got their teeth into. And also global celebrities. We shouldn't forget that as well. So for example, in France, Jacques Cousteau, the famous French diver, explored was hugely influential in inflaming opinion against Cramra. And of course, you know, he and others would say something along the lines of, you know, why are we talking about mining in the Antarctic? This is a wilderness region. This is outrageous. So Michel Rocard and Bob Hawke of France and Australia, respectively, announced to the world they are no longer participating in these negotiations. Now, remember what I said earlier, Antarctic governance absolutely relies on consensus. Every party has to say yes. Every party has to agree, exactly. So two of the original signatories, two claimant states as well. Remember, there were painful trade-offs to be done around mining and claimant states and who got what revenue sharing agreements, said we're having no part of it. Well, for the United Kingdom in particular, this was absolutely maddening. Mm. They had absolutely, you know, they had invested six years of intense diplomatic endeavour for this framework, thought they were on the verge of signing, you know, and then suddenly two parties announced to the world, we're not doing it. It's a bit like, you know, if you want to purchase a home and you get gazumped, you know, you <laughs> think you're nearly there and then it's all over. So crisis. So in 1989, 1990, the 
Antarctic Treaty system looks like it's on its knees. This is absolutely an appalling moment. Consensus has been broken. All eyes are focused on the Antarctic Treaty parties. They have to work quickly. Now, within 18 months of a whole series of very, very rapid diplomatic encounters, meetings are held in Chile and Spain, and then eventually something called the Protocol on Environmental Protection is agreed. And Article 7 says mining is prohibited. Okay, quite black and white. (laughs) Very clear. It's very clear. And, you know, if you talk to the UK delegates at the time, they would say that we consider this a permanent ban. Now, what that did was two things. First of all, it restored consensus. All the Antarctic Treaty parties signed it. It didn't enter into force until 1998. So there was a seven-year hiatus, but at least everybody agreed that. And it also neutralised, in many respects, the criticism made by external parties. Then, oh, look, the treaty system still works. We can still agree. <laughs> and they're not trying to carve it up. Sure. Because remember, for a lot of Global South representatives, including Malaysia, famously, you know, what what really annoyed them, which made it slightly different to the environmental uh, agitation, was that the idea that the Antarctic was full of resources and that a select group of countries, yet again, were going to profiteer and then nobody else was going to see any of the benefits. Um, Environmental groups, of course, were just outraged by the idea that mining would be considered in this, um, you know, very special environment. So ASA for example, ran an absolutely brilliant campaign simply called Save Antarctica. Mm. I mean, if you were interested in media and Antarctica, absolutely brilliant example. Remember, this is all before social media. They were incredibly effective in running a PR campaign that made the life of the Antarctic Treaty parties really hard. And was that one of, at the risk of getting slightly too bogged down, why did Australia and France walk away? Was that one of the main reasons and just public pressure and... Well, I'm mildly surprised that they did, I suppose. <laughs> yes, um, they they walked away for slightly different reasons, but I think I think you know, let's be candid about this. I think part of the reasoning of both countries was political opportunism. You know, in the sense of I think the mood music was changing in both countries, and I think politically it was considered disadvantageous to continue the process. Jacques Cousteau, as I say, was a national figure as well as being a global celebrity, so having him. Uh, speak very strongly against this mattered. I think Australia was more divided. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that Australia is a mining economy, fundamentally. So, of course, there were quite a few people who were quite sympathetic to mining in Antarctica. But there were also Bob Hawke, the then Prime Minister, recognised that environmental opinion was becoming more important in Australian politics. I say all this, of course, with the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, you know, who's a very different kind of Prime Minister, I think, to Bob Hawke. I think Bob Hawke genuinely cared about environmental issues. But again, he was a politician, and I think he clearly recognised that Cranmer wasn't going to work domestically for both countries. I think that's the key thing. And I think in the end, dare I said, I think Australia and France did the Antarctic Treaty system a favour. Sure, they probably did, but they could show that it was a test, I guess, that it stood up to the test. Yeah, yeah and maybe the fact that one of them was going to walk away made it easier for another. I don't know if that would have factored at all, but yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the um, let's talk about the treaty system now. Obviously, the Antarctic Treaty is still in effect. It's still what governs the region. There's now fifty four parties as opposed to the original twelve. So yeah, but there's it's kind of there's not been much. Am I right in thinking that this environmental protection protocol was the last kind of protocol that's been produced and that was in the 90s? So, it's, you know, significant and well, a bit of time has gone past <laughs> since then. 
Um, so what's kind of what's the state of the treaty system now? They meet the parties meet fairly frequently, right? Every year, every other year, and they have these um, consultative meetings, and that's where they just talk about well, like fish quotas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if, if fish just, quotas at the Camelot meetings. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if I if I sort of break some of that down, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. So one of the stories of the Antarctic treaty system is it has been successful in reproducing itself. So until at the start, they met every two years, and then it became an annual affair. And, you know, if you're wondering why and when they meet annually, of course, it was just decided there was enough business to justify a two week long meeting, they until quite recently met in person. Mm -hmm. And the location literally follows the alphabet. So for example, you know, if it was Finland, recently, you know, it's going to be France next, and so on and so forth. So everybody gets a turn eventually. Um, the Antarctic Treaty system has grown in membership, but it's important to distinguish between what we call Antarctic Treaty consultative parties and Antarctic Treaty signatories. So the former are the sort of the, the vote, the vote holders, and the latter are the ones who have signed the treaty, but they still have yet to demonstrate substantial scientific activity. So they haven't yet qualified, if you will, for okay. full membership. So that's all good in the sense of that people want to be part of the treaty system. Um, from the 1980s onwards, it's diversified. So big players like India and China have increasingly made their presence felt. But you're absolutely right. The last piece of substantial innovation was the protocol. And that's now quite a long time ago, 30 odd years ago. So there's been a lot of, I guess, reflection over the last three decades about what is the state of Antarctic governance. And I think I would just say two things. Number one, I think certain issues like tourism, there hasn't really been an appetite to develop another convention or a protocol. In very large part, the treaty parties have taken the view that polar tourism, you know, that just before the pandemic, what there were, I don't know, 70,000 visitors per year. You know, it's a big industry that that should really be um, self-managed by the polar tour operators. And they have a special association called IATO that sort of represents their interests. You have to be a member of IATO, of course, so not everyone is captured by that. But it's largely been, I think, an arrangement that, yes, we would call it self-regulation, I suppose. And then there are other issues like, for example, fishing. So your point about fishing quotas or what's called in the, in the jargon, total allowable catches, TACs, they're negotiated annually at another meeting, which is held by CAMLA. And CAMLA is based in Hobart and Tasmania. So that doesn't change. And that is a really important meeting. That's where the nitty gritty is done in terms of who gets to do what in various sectors of the Southern Ocean. So that's a continuity. The consultative party meetings continue to talk about things that matter to them collectively. And some of that can be, you know, can be quite specific. It might be, for example, the use of drones in Antarctica, because that has to be talked about. And what can you do and can't do? And, you know, do we want to set recommendations about, um, you know, whether tourists, for example, are dissuaded from taking their own personal drones um, and all of that um, to substantive things? So the kind of big meaty business is often around things like, environmental impact assessment. So whenever a country wants to create a new station or a runway 
or to expand its facilities, you know, its port facilities, whatever it might be. Under the protocol, it's supposed to carry out environmental impact assessments, and those impact assessments are then judged and evaluated by the Committee on Environmental Protection. So there's lots of kind of, I suppose, day-to-day stuff that does go on that's really integral to the system. And really the key thing that everybody wants to try and do is to maintain consensus. But let me say one more thing about why perhaps the treaty system has not been as innovative as it might have been over the last 30 years. I think the, the, the simple matter is this is that the treaty system at the moment is sufficient for all the major players. As long as the treaty holds, then nobody's interests are directly compromised. But where we have seen tension, and there's no getting away from it, I'll just identify two very quickly. Number one is over marine protected areas, um, which we're, we're trying to establish more of in the Southern Ocean. That's been painful. And that's partly because, to keep things straightforward, we have what I would call fishing nations and I and we have what I would call sort of conservation minded nations and they don't always align with one another <laughs> and Kamla has this sort of really tricky I, I guess balancing act to pull off which is you are allowed to exploit fish in the southern ocean under so-called rational use but you've also got to take seriously the ecosystem and Mm. actually make sure you don't undermine it. So that's one area. Another area which I think has been quite painful is over infrastructure. And two examples, one is so-called dual use technology. So when, for example, countries invest in communication systems that enable, for example, better GPS or better communication, but at the same time could be used by global missile tracking systems, awkward when you've got a continent that's supposed to be demilitarized. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, nonetheless, it doesn't have an offensive capability. Another, another obvious area of tension, we see it at the moment, listeners will be aware of this, I'm sure, is proposals from Australia to potentially build a new runway at Davis Station. And we get back to this really tricky issue, which is, you know, what, what is impactful in the Antarctic. The protocol in various areas is just so delightfully vague about what is impactful and how do we judge it. And it really comes down to making value judgments. So some some folks in Australia might say, we need this runway, you know, we need this runway because we need better connectivity in Australian Antarctic territory. Now, as a geopolitical scholar, I might say, I know why you need that runway. You need that runway because you want to send a clear signal to other countries like China that you're a very serious player in the Antarctic and that you will defend your interests in Australian Antarctic territory. Scientists might say in Australia and elsewhere, why do we need such a big runway? Can't we do things, you know, on a smaller scale or on a scale that is less impactful? Mm-hmm. So you get all these very difficult, difficult, you know, tendacious issues, both within a country and beyond. And that means, therefore, the forces of conservatism have tended to prevail. Okay. Yeah, it must just be fascinating to watch it as it changes and, you know, as new things happen. And it's like, as as we've, as we've said, it was conceived so long ago, the treaty, that, and the world has changed so much in that time that it's like, yeah, <laughs> how it applies now is just different to how it was when it was originally conceived, I suppose. But I think the other thing I would say as well, because, you know, you're a polar scientist, so... I think one of the interesting things for me is the role in which polar scientists play in all of this. So what you and others represent is, in essence, still the sort of, you know, the currency of influence. It really matters to the United Kingdom that we are an incredibly strong 
polar scientific power. Antarctica trades in science diplomacy. You and others as members of the polar science community do really important work just by your mere presence in terms of Britain's polar power. You know, we put tremendous emphasis on the quality of our science, the quality of our scientific community, and the impact we think that has for a, in terms of a positive benefit, not only in Antarctic Treaty governance, but also the wider world. So I think one of the big things that's really changed from the 1950s to the present day is such a strong sense that the Antarctic is so intimately connected to planet Earth. And that, you know, if you think about the Antarctic's land, sea, ice, air, if you will, then it's impossible not to think of these things as being interconnected or intersected by other processes, systems, exchanges of you know, energy or matter or whatever it might be. So we don't think of the Antarctic in any sense whatsoever as disconnected. And of course, we also think of the Antarctic as connected, for example, to outer space and the atmosphere and all the rest of it. So that's really, that's really changed. And I think scientists as a community, as an epistemic community, I think tend to be quite internationalists. They tend to be sort of cosmopolitan in the sense that they just want to do good science. They just want to collaborate, you know, with all kinds of fascinating people and institutions. The problem is, for those who manage Antarctic governance, is on the one hand, we like all of that, because that helps with prestige and power. But it also means it can be a bit troubling and awkward because there may be some people you want to, you know, cooperate more with than others. And you might be more comfortable, for example, working with the United States than, say, with other parties. And so, and so it goes on. So there's always been this tension between what I would call nationalistic geopolitics and internationalistic geopolitics. Uh, and the Antarctic is a fascinating place to see the intersection between these, these two forces, I suppose. It's, it's interesting you're saying that how you're thinking of the Antarctica being very connected because I, I suppose being in the academic scientific field you sometimes feel that you know scientists are the only ones who think that way that you know to everyone else Antarctica is this far away remote nothing to do with life at home kind of continent I mean obviously it might be different in Tasmania and Chile and South Africa but speaking for the UK yeah so it's interesting that in politics as well they think of it like Similarly, and that's a, an overlap, I guess, between science and politics. <laughs> yeah, and it yeah. also means that, for example, and let's give credit to leading agencies like British Antarctic Survey, mm. who work incredibly hard to make those connections explicit. Sure. So, in a sense, you know, when Britain invests in a new polar vessel, the Sir David Attenborough, or when we modernize and upgrade our research stations, you know, Rothera or whatever it might be, then that's a testimony to really a really powerful job well done by polar stakeholders. Because you're absolutely right, to most people in the UK, the Antarctic will still be a very, very remote in all kinds of ways space. You know, it's not going to be somewhere they think about necessarily with quite the same familiarity as they would do, say, the United States or the rest of Europe, or whatever it might be. So our job, I think, as scientists and social scientists is to constantly, I think, reinforce why these parts of the world matter to us and that we mustn't think of mountains, jungles, polar continents as unimportant to us in the UK, but also the sort of, you know, if you will, the wider global community. Likewise in the Arctic. 
you know, it's an inhabited space for sure, but many people might think, oh, it's just this icy space with polar bears. But then once you begin to think about how the Arctic's fate has such direct implications for the UK as well, you know, whether it's weather, pollutants, whatever it might be, then I think it becomes a little bit easier then to, to really show that geographical distance is not, not a reliable predictor of significance. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good message. <laughs> um, have you ever attended a consultative meeting of the Antarctic Treaty? I've, I've never attended. And um, I think, to be perfectly honest, most um, social scientists, unless they had a very particular you know, reason to be in a national delegation, wouldn't necessarily fit easily with the remit of the consultative meeting. So, you know, if I went, it would be very much more an ethnographic vein uh, because, the, you know, the delegation that goes on behalf of the United Kingdom has all the experts they need. There'll be scientific experts, but there'll also crucially be legal and technical experts who will help guide the head of delegation and the work that they do in terms of representing the UK's interests. It's not impossible to attend as a social scientist. You know, I've had friends and colleagues who've done so with other national delegations and might also, you know, be part of, for example, the NGO community that's attends. I have to be honest, I, I would love to go one day, but it, it's, it, for me, it's, it would be out of interest as opposed to, I'm not trying to write about the, the workings of the Antarctic Treaty system. What I'm far more interested, actually, is the broader geopolitical governance context. Sure. I suppose I was, I was going to ask if there was kind of a, a noticeable difference or can any kind of um if it was in any way an issue or a limitation for people who are making the decisions about the antarctic space you know do you notice the difference between people who've been there and people who haven't been there and you know do you think how important do you think it is for people who are making decisions about the antarctic to have experienced it on um, the same goes for either poll, I suppose. But like you say, they all have had their scientific experts and everyone to <laughs> tell them all about it. So, Well, let me just make an observation, which probably, particularly for, you know, again, the UK context, but it's also true, by the way, of the United States and Norway. So one of the things you notice with people who are the special representatives for the polar regions, or for example, in the case of the UK, Jane Rumble, who's the senior civil servant responsible for the polar regions in the FCDO, is that not only have they been to the Antarctic on many occasions, but they are absolutely passionate about it. And Jane's position, she's only the fourth person to hold that position since the 1940s. And every single person who's held that position, three men, one woman, are, have been equally passionate about the Antarctic and all of them, you know, they absolutely leveraged both their expertise and passion to actually ensure that the UK was well represented in this governance system. Now, without naming specific delegations, because I don't need to make, I'll make this a generic point. One of the things you notice, which is different in other countries, is that delegations might be made up of civil servants and even ministers who will literally attend a meeting, but the polar is not part of necessarily their regular portfolio. Mm. And you could say there are advantages and disadvantages. The um, disadvantage, I think, from the Antarctic Treaty System point of view, 
is that the treaty was created in some ways by hard-nosed negotiation, but it was also created by people who were enthusiasts, you know, people who were passionate about this part of the world. But on the other hand, when you come to things like total allowable catches and fish management, you don't, you know, you, in essence, you don't want people being sentimental about the Antarctic because this is about a living resource bargain. It's about saying that we're okay with exploiting the Antarctic up until a certain point because we think the ecosystem is sustainable, you know, with X amount of fish being extracted or krill, whatever it might be. The, the difficulty comes if consensus becomes problematic and if, for example, tension elsewhere in the world starts to make the work of the Antarctic treaty system harder. So an obvious example would be, as you know, you and I both know, after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the relationship with Russia has been just, it's been harder, it's been tougher. And what we don't want in the Antarctic treaty system is for Russia to be isolated, marginalised, frustrated, and ultimately, which would be the nightmare scenario for a major country like Russia, for example, to walk away from the treaty system. Nobody wants that. And that's another reason why, of course, consensus tends to favour conservatism, because what you don't want is people saying, that's it. I don't want to be part of this anymore, because that creates another kind of crisis. So what we've seen with marine protected areas is that Russia and China have had to be negotiated with. And that means sometimes, much to the irritation or disappointment of environmentalists, it means that final agreements are not quite as robust, not quite as long lasting as they may have wished for. But that's the price of consensus and, that, and you just have to respect that. Because that's just the nature of foreign relations in general. You know, you have to, <laughs> what happens in one field will impact sometimes what happens in another. Yeah. I have two final questions, which may have quite long answers. So it will, <laughs> uh, and they might lead to other questions, but um, yes. Yeah. So how, what, how has this system stood up in the light of recent times and a global pandemic situation? I, th I think pretty well. It's been tough. I think like so many of us, the, the pandemic um, has forced us, I think, to radically rethink in some cases how we do business with one another. I mean, you know, you and I are recording this podcast via, you know, a sort of recording platform that has become only too familiar to us in the last 12 to 15 months. Indeed, actually, you know, we could even talk about Zoom diplomacy. And that term has been used because you really from March 2020 onwards, when face to face contact was no longer possible or safe, I suppose. It meant that the Antarctic Consultative Meeting was not only cancelled that year, which was hugely disappointing to Finland that I've been looking forward to hosting it. Is that the first time ever? That one first time ever. I mean, wow. and you know, such a, I mean, such a shame because Finland now won't get a chance to host the meeting. Oh, you have to go back through the alphabet. <laughs> I have to go through the alphabet. And so that means, in effect, it's got 20 plus years to wait. Mm. And that's, you know, it's so disappointing. But it also meant when you do tough negotiations, uh, you know, it's often easier to talk to people face to face. You know, as Churchill Stalin once said, you know, about, you know, I looked him in the eye mm -hmm. and, and made a an assessment of his character. Well, you know, these, these are difficult negotiations, can be. And one of the things often, you, you know, people will tell you who attend these meetings is corridor talk matters, socialising over coffee, smokers breaks, 
you know, uh, are important in some cases to do that kind of, you know, almost like track two diplomacy. So none of that was possible. So everybody had to innovate. Everybody, including the United Nations, had to learn how to do Zoom meetings and try and make sure that you, in some senses, reconsider what does consensus mean when you can no longer see people in quite the same way? You know, can you judge consensus as well if you're looking at 30 screens as opposed to a, a nice round table or something akin where it's easier to see somebody's body language, you know, or, or sort of cautious response? So the systems had to adjust. But I think let's be positive about all of this. I mean, you know, it's been so tough for everybody in so many different ways. But ultimately, the governance system is still there. You know, Kamla still operates. Business is still being done. But we've also had to learn to make contingencies as well. So, you know, a lot of polar scientists have had to, I think, deal with this sort of, you know, at times crushing news that your plans to go, you know, to Antarctica are not going to be possible in quite the way that you hoped. Or, for example, infrastructure modernization plans are having to be sort of scaled back because we worry about public health. And then the final thing to say about that, which is something to watch out for, is depending on how this pandemic goes, is whether we might see public health being used in ways that could be obstructive. Just to give you one example. So one of the things that we... we depend upon is trust and information sharing. That, that has to be there, otherwise the treaty system suffers. Now, in the past, we've had third parties on fishing vessels doing inspections to make sure that fishing vessels respect the so-called total allowable catch. Well, supposing one party says, I don't want third party inspectors on because I'm worried about public health. And then we discover said fishing vessel engages in illegal or excessive fishing. So we've got to be careful that public health is used for public health purposes, but is not used to obscure, to obstruct, or even to disable, if you will, checking mechanisms, confidence building mechanisms that are integral to governance, including the Antarctic. Yeah. Would you say that it's kind of this incident has kind of highlighted any potential weaknesses in the way the system operates, or any kind of the way just international cooperation occurs. It's <laughs> the way it took so, everyone by surprise. <laughs> yeah, so a textbook example occurred not so long ago. It involved a Russian vessel called the Palmer, and New Zealand, in essence, started the case against the Palmer and said that the Palmer had falsified its location data and was fishing in a part of the Southern Ocean it shouldn't have been fishing in. Palmer was a Russian vessel, as I say, and the Russian authorities disputed the New Zealand interpretation of where the Palmer was, and they rejected criticism that the vessel had falsified its location data. Now, New Zealand and others wanted the Palmer placed on, in, a, in essence, a sort of blacklist mm. of vessels that had engaged in illegal fishing. Russia refused. And in the end... New Zealand and others backed down from this particular course of action because they feared that consensus would be breached. Right, interesting. So you've seen this already. Mm. And, and I'm afraid, in essence, that is, is both the beauty and the weakness of the Antarctic Treaty system. The beauty is that it's attracted 54 signatories 
and we've never had a major conflict. We've never had nuclear explosions. We've never had mining. And by and large, collaboration and goodwill exists, and it's particularly strong on the ice. But, you know, it also exists in the diplomatic corridor. The bad news is when countries or fishing vessels or whatever it might be engage in bad behaviour or problematic behaviour, then we often don't follow through Mm. and do what you might consider to be the right thing because then there's a danger that consensus phrase and then the whole system collapses. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't want listeners to think that this is a house of cards because that's not fair. You know, a, a treaty system wouldn't have lasted 60 years if it wasn't built on reasonably solid foundations. But it's just to make the point that I think Antarctic treaty business is a lot more complicated than it once was. Well, that leads me nicely onto my last question, I suppose, which might make you laugh or roll your eyes. I'm not sure. Is the treaty up for review? Or if it's not, will it ever be up for review? Uh, is it how likely is any of these things to change? Is consensus something that's set in stone forever? Or is it is there rumblings that maybe that's going to change? I only ask this because it's one of those things I've heard since being in polar life. You know, oh, it's getting reviewed at 50 years. Oh, it'll be actually in 2048. And... No one knows, no one can confirm. Yeah, so one of the challenges uh, those of us who work in sort of Antarctic social science have is dealing with media reporting that is often inaccurate or sensationalist or both. And this is absolutely true, of course, every area. And it'd be true of your area in terms of science communication. You know, you work in a you know, a sophisticated field and then comes somebody then comes along and writes an article where you think, (laughs) You know, you absolutely uh, misrepresented, you know, either scientific fundamentals or the nature of my research or somebody else's research, whatever. So we have exactly the same problem in the social sciences. And one of the biggest shibboleths is around reviews. And part of the problem is people don't read treaties and protocols. And if they do read them, they don't read them carefully enough. So I'm not going to make a big deal for this, but I'm simply going to simply say this is that, yes, there have been points where there is potential to have so-called sort of treaty review conferences and where there are processes and mechanisms, you know, where it might be possible to amend the treaty or to amend the protocol. However, first of all, it's not straightforward. You know, the system is set up not to make these things too easy. So you can't do things on a whim. Mm. And remember, everything's about consensus. So just because you want something doesn't mean everybody else wants something. So we shouldn't allow ourselves to become hysterical about the idea that in 2048, for example, 50 years after the entry of the force of the protocol, that China or India, Brazil, or the United States or whoever is going to say, right, that's it. I want Article 7 revoked it's time for some mining. You know, I've had enough of this wilderness idea. It's not that straightforward. And I wouldn't assume for a second that in 2049, the protocol is going to be amended or dropped in Article 7. I don't think we need to worry about dates, because actually, we've got enough things to be worrying about in the here and now. (laughs) So, you know, we've got, for example, parties carrying out seismic surveys in Antarctica, Geological research is wonderfully dual use. You know, you can carry out geological research and before you know it, you've done resource evaluation. And it's very difficult to know 
what another party is necessarily doing with all of this. Parties have invested quite a bit of energy in thinking about whether one day they might be able to um, extend their sovereign rights over the seabed off Antarctica. You know, so is a claimant state a coastal state in Antarctica? Well, you know, the seven claimant states probably do think of themselves as coastal states, but nobody else does. So the Law of the Sea Convention has a sort of rather uncomfortable existence with the Antarctic Treaty System. These two things are not obvious how they align. So there's lots of things going on where I think if we were looking closely, we, we would say there's a bit of jostling between the, the powers here in Antarctica. And some people have even talked about the return of strategic competition in the Antarctic. I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. You know, the UK's integrated review, which was a big review of foreign and defence and security policy released earlier this year, makes it quite clear that the UK is operating in a more competitive environment, and that includes the Antarctic. And we need to take very seriously what countries like Russia, China, uh, the United States, India are doing, because that will have implications for the treaty system, and it will have implications for our standing in what we think of as British Antarctic territory. So essentially, like everything, it's not as cut and dried as you read <laughs> or hear or see on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, it seems to have been a great fear, doesn't it, that oh, it's going to be 2049 and we're going to start mining in <laughs> in Antarctica. But OK, yeah, as you say, it's not never that simple. So, yeah. <laughs> no, and I and I, I and I, you know, it, it may not yet come to pass that um, you know, mining will be a feature of the Antarctic. I mean, look, if we're taking the Paris Accords seriously, we shouldn't even be thinking about places like the Antarctic for oil and gas. I think, you know, where, where there's been a little bit more speculation, to be candid, has been around other minerals. And I think one of the uncomfortable truths that we're all going to have to get to grips with is as we plan for a, a transition away from hydrocarbons into what we hope will be a more renewable future, um, there will be no shortage of mining. You know, we will still need plenty of resources, um, including, you know, rare earths mm. to help us transition um, to something, you know, less carbon intensive. So mining is not going to disappear. And the need to exploit is not going to diminish as we hope population, for example, stabilizes to around nine or 10 billion. You know, there's an awful lot of more people to support, but we've also, Antarctica has also, in essence, borne the brunt of global capitalism. You know, and let's be clear about that as well, that the last 200 years kind of mirrors the rise of European Western American capitalism with all the focus on at times, as I say, really aggressive resource exploitation and with rather less thought given to environmental impact. So, you know, it's really, I think it's really important not to characterize this as simply, you know, being down to one factor as opposed to another, but also to be very clear that we can't, I'm afraid, have rose tinted glasses when it comes to the Antarctic. I wish it was a haven for science and goodwill and all the rest of it, but we need to be attentive to these other forces and pressures, I think. Absolutely. I think, well, should we, um, was there anything else 
that was all fabulous. I've just been nodding along here, like <laughs> learning so much. And yeah, excellent. Was there anything that you would like to have been asked so that you want me to ask you or anything like that? Okay. Okay, that brings us to the last part of our podcast. We call it the Polar Plug. It's where I give you, Klaus, our guest, time to just a few minutes just to talk about something um, that you'd like to share with the general public. It can be a person, a project, a literally anything so yes take it away final thoughts if you like <laughs> well the only thing i want to share is is i think with with listeners is that i think one of the exciting things about contemporary antarctic science and social science is that we have so many more wonderful educational resources on offer to i hope inspire the next generation to take a take you know, or to share, let me put it this way, I hope the same passion and interest that I and so many others in our community share for these extraordinary spaces, both the Antarctic and the Arctic. And I think the other thing I would say is, and it's really the testimony, I think, to the good that social media does, is that we're seeing now far more early career researchers use social media very skillfully and purposefully to not only represent their research, which is often at the cutting edge, which is always exciting, but also to generate new kinds of transnational communities that mean, I think, that our collective work feels a great deal more shared and co-produced than when it did when I started my career 30 years ago, where it was felt a lot more siloed and there was less sort of sharing of information and I think, yes, just to sort of a sense of community as well. So I think I want to end on that positive note that there is lots of really splendid people coming into this space, doing really sort of creative, excellent scholarship and public engagement. And so I'm really excited about that. The one thing I would love to see, I think if I had a magic wand, it would be simply this. I would love to see a more diverse polar science and social science. I think there's incredibly important initiatives going on, many of which are sort of sponsored by relevant stakeholders in the United Kingdom and of course elsewhere around diversity. But what I'd like to think of is that people who look and sound like me in particular really do become a lot more, if you like, minority in terms of numbers, because I think that's the one of the greatest shifts I hope we'll be able to achieve in the coming years, is we will stop thinking of Antarctica as a sort of overwhelmingly a space defined culturally at least by you know heterosexual white men, ableist white men, and with everything that has gone with it. And, and you know, just to, just to really remind listeners about why this matters, in 1969, when the first men were setting foot on the moon, the first women finally reached the South Pole. And it, it's really only in the last 20 years where we've begun finally to see women and minority communities actually make begin to make their presence felt in this academic and operating environment. And I really salute and celebrate that because, you know, it, it was very, very different, really not so long ago. I mean, it's, it's just, we are absolutely only talking 20, 30 years. So I think, so I want two things. One, this environment is changing, I hope for the better, and I really celebrate that. Secondly, I'm absolutely in awe at the skill 
of so many early career researchers and the way they communicate their research on social media. So it was a longer answer than I really meant, but that's what I want to plug and celebrate. I have nothing to say, you know, in terms of what I'm up to personally, because that doesn't really matter. It's really about the, 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 the wider community. Okay, excellent. That's a lovely note to finish on. So thank you for that. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much, Jack. I, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. The hour and a half has just flown by. It really has, yes. I've just, yeah, and... Like I say, I've just been nodding along. I've <laughs> so much. It's been... Well, also, thank you for letting me give quite long and detailed answers. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you ask um, very nice open questions, so <laughs> I think it, it, it invites it. I'm glad um, you said that as a positive, not rather than a, a No, no, it's, <laughs> I mean it's a positive. Yeah, thank, I'm you go so much. thank you for your time, and I really appreciate your um, inviting me in the first place. Okay. Brilliant. Have good thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Bye Take care. Bye. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and for tuning in again and for coming back to our little podcast. It means the absolute world to me and all of the team. Um, if you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us. As always, our email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once again, that email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. And it's all in lowercase, just in case. You're wondering, of course, yeah. And don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on all of your little podcast places where we're in most places where you get podcasts that I am aware of. So, yeah, just a little, little. If you'd like to, yeah, even leave a little review. We'd love to hear any feedback, um, positive or negative. Uh, yeah, and thank you again for coming back to Polar Times. Um, it was all in there. Just do that. Cheers. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.